The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And as always, it's been an interesting week in technology. They're still talking about the big cryptocurrency case. That finally has a judgment. Uh, we're going to try to get to that before the end of the show. It's an interesting, uh, interesting development. And we're going to talk about some technology that's in the grocery store. They use a special technique to make oranges look oranger. I think it's an interesting technology. I've never, never really thought that much about it until I started looking into it this week. Uh, we're going to feature a guy who started a company when he was 19. He's now 24. His company is now worth over $6 billion. His company is called Scale AI. It's Alexander Wang, and he is helping companies put AI systems into production. It's an extremely interesting story. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Schertz. No tech talk question with this letter. Just an observation uh, uh, regarding an article about Parang Agarwal, Agarwal who uh, that dovetails with your remarks on tech talk. He, of course, is the uh, chief technology officer at Twitter, and um, and uh, he's very liberal. If you listen to what he's been saying, he says, "I don't." Uh, Arnie goes on to say, "I don't mind getting the intellectual talent in IT from foreign countries, but we don't like all their li liberal ideas." Uh, what do you think about that, uh, Arnie in Colorado Springs? Well, Arnie, I wouldn't generalize uh, about. Um, uh, people uh, coming from other countries, whether they're liberal or not, because the U.S. T t tends to change people when they get here. I think the problem we have with Silicon Valley is there's an elite attitude in Silicon Valley, and they have an attitude that they know better what to do for the world than the world knows itself. And that elite attitude permeates all these companies like Google, Twitter, Facebook, and they have a holier-than-thou attitude. I don't know that it's necessarily because we have uh, people from other countries there. It's primarily, it's just a culture that has developed in Silicon Valley. And I think uh, over time, that culture is not, is not helping Silicon Valley. In fact, many people are leaving Silicon Valley and moving to Texas because they don't, they don't like the culture. We've got, we've had at Stratford probably... Uh, Parag uh, Agrawal, he's, he's from India. We've probably had, we've, we've had thousands of students from India. We have, a, we have a, a campus in India, so I know lots and lots of folks from India. 
And they definitely do like capitalism. But but India as a country does is in the roots of uh, Mahatma Gandhi when the when uh, when the Indians overthrew the British and Mahatma Gandhi took over. Uh, he basically set up a democracy, but it was also very much embedded with socialist ideas where the the government would support the people. And in India, more than 50% of the people are on some sort of government subsistence. More than 50%, maybe 60% of the people are. And so uh, it's a democracy. And so in India, when uh, when you... Uh, when you run for office, you basically have to talk to all the people who are on government programs. And in India, everybody votes, even the poorest of the poor. So all the politicians talk about what they're going to be giving away uh, in, in, in that. And so there is within India a, 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 you know, a tendency towards socialism. But the younger generation come along, and this happened in southern India, where we had the big IT boom, the younger generation comes along and they just want to make something of themselves. And so there's an evolution going on in India. And a lot of the young people that we get into this country from India are from the younger generation, and they very much are entrepreneurial capitalists, and uh, and they want to make a difference in the world. So I wouldn't generalize, but uh, but there is, you know, but you do have the cultural aspects of a country whenever you've got immigrants coming in. But the U.S., of course, Arnie, changes people when they get here. And so in 10 years, people have a better, have a different attitude because they see what works in America. We got, uh, we got another email from Arnie, which was interesting because he's, he, had a, he did have a problem, which is a common problem that many people had. He said, my uh, iPhone service is, is with Verizon. And recently, I've, I've been, I don't have any LTE. That's the, that's the, that's the fourth generation um, uh, network, which basically has high, high download speeds for data. And, and I'm having a problem with this. He said, I've got a 6S Plus phone. I tried it a few times. It didn't work. I tried it a day later. It didn't work. I was able to make phone calls, but LTE never shows up. Have you ever heard about this LTE problem before? Uh, thanks for your latest updates, Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie, if your LTE signal drops out without you having done anything, I'd, I'd first of all visit your network provider's website and look at the outage notifier. Just search for outage notifier, and then you put in your zip code, and it will tell you if there if there are any outages or working on your network. Because if the LTE is out, it, sometimes it'll just backdrop to the th to the three G or to the 2G. And so you can always make phone calls, but you don't have high-speed data if you're surfing the web. Now, if there's something wrong with your phone, there's a process you can go through to fix it. Something that works 90% of the time is to simply do a hard reboot. <laughs> this works on computers and everything. So do a hard reboot of your phone. Not just don't turn it off. Do a hard reboot, which means is that will clear everything in memory, and that chances are will fix the problem. Now, the second thing you want to do after you've done the hard reboot is uh, make certain you're not in airplane mode. So toggle airplane mode on and off, and make certain that the airplane mode is off. 
The third thing, you want to check your connection. You see your, your cell phone has a, has, a, has a network connection, or you can choose whether you're 3G or not, and maybe your network connection is, is just selecting 3G and you've, and you've chosen not to do LTE. So I, I'm just going through the, the, the checklist of things to do. Uh, so like uh, you've got an iPhone, so you'd select settings and cellular data, and under that, select options, and then you want to enable... 4G, enable 4G, which is another name for LTE. And, and if that if 4G is not enabled, you, you won't get it. Now, if you've got a SIM card, because I don't know if you've got a SIM card, sometimes if you drop your phone, the SIM card gets jarred, and that, and that will affect your, uh, your phone connection. So if you've got a SIM card, what I would do is take the SIM card out, wipe it off, wipe it off with a clean cloth, and then replace it. That, that could also fix a problem if you had a misseated SIM card. Now, the last thing you can do is you can reset the network settings. You see, you download network settings from your carrier periodically whenever they update the network. And you might have some old carrier settings which are indicating to your phone that there's not LTE there. So what you want to do is, Arnie, you go to Select Settings and then General and then you select reset, and then you have reset network settings, and then uh, you'll, you'll have to enter your phone's PIN number, and then you wanna confirm the reset settings. And what it does, it just deletes all your network settings, and then it downloads new settings automatically from the carrier. Now, if it's still not working on your phone, you might wanna consider waiting a while to see if it's an issue with your carrier. Uh, those are pretty much your only options, Arnie. Best of luck. Hope you get your LTE working. That's a lot of yeah. options too, Doc. I'll say that. But um, the, the other thing is that, I mean, it's a pretty old phone. And yeah. doesn't connectivity, I mean, with every generation of iPhone, aren't they improving the connectivity? Does it relate to, when you say connectivity, and I see that word being used, you know, better connectivity on the 13, yeah. for example, does that mean, uh, I know, does that mean uh, Wi-Fi connections or does it also mean connecting to a phone network? Connected to the phone, but but the LTE standards haven't changed. So the so the 6s plus supported LTE. It didn't support 5G, for instance. Mm -hmm. So uh, and so you you know the the standards are pretty well fixed. And um, you know some of these older phones, especially if you're low on RAM, you've got you you could have issues. This is why I like this hard reboot and going through the process. But I had I, I had a success for years. I loved it. Uh, and then I finally I finally went to get my 11. I went. I went to a seven and then an eleven. And um, but I I liked my success. I only got rid of it because um, the battery life was so bad. But uh, I, I I think he should have no trouble with the LTE uh, on that. But it's I I would say it's time for him to upgrade his phone. Probably. <laughs> I, I, I kind of agree with you on that. Yeah, probably. Yeah, we got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Andrew, I came across an article showing that the chip manufacturers in Taiwan don't like being blamed for the chip shortage, and they're blaming Texas Instruments as responsible for the worldwide chip shortage. Uh, some Taiwan-based tech manufacturers, either people that make smartphones, make PCs, make related gadgets, have singled out TI as being the, as being the source of the problem. Could this be true? What's going on here? Well, there is some truth to it, Bob. I, I looked into it. Now, the accusation is based on the fact that TI manufactures analog chips. 
Now, these analog chips are essential for things like uh, PC voltage regulation. Now, these chips are a fundamental part of all the computing technology, and it turns out there's a bigger shortage of, for, in analog chips than there is in digital chips. And these advanced specialized chips like uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing produces. So it could very well be that the shortage of analog chips is affecting the worldwide delivery of integrated systems that are using chips. Now, what's interesting though with this big chip shortage this is going to be good for the U.S. in general because it's driving a renaissance in U.S. chip manufacturing because people are saying, look, we don't want to be, be beholding to other countries for our chips. So last May, TI started construction of a $3.1 billion chip plant near its Dallas headquarters, and it may finalize plans for another facility soon. So TI is expanding their chip manufacturing capacity dramatically. Now, they'll probably solve the analog chip shortage by the end of 2022 because of this new plant that's coming online. Intel announced this past March that they're going to spend $20 billion to build two new chip manufacturing plants in Arizona. In addition to that, the world's biggest chip maker, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, has already started construction of a $12 billion plant in Arizona. So the long-term prognosis for the U.S. and the chip field is good, but we've got to wait for the capacity to increase. When do you think we'll see results, though? Like right now, so much is happening like with car, car shortages because chips are missing so when can we catch up to a point where we're not seeing the supply short of uh, supply chain problems that we're having? It's right going to be a year. It'll be a year from mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. it, it'll take a year for uh, for this for this capacity buildup to sort of catch up, and certainly by the middle of 2023, it'll it'll be gone. But I'd say it'll it's going to take a year from now for the chip shortage to disappear, and 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 this was a case where uh, we. We, we let too much of the chip manufacturing be outsourced. And like Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, TSMC in Taiwan, they, they were making all these high-end chips. And so there was too much production uh, of chips, you know, concentrated in just a few com companies and countries. And I think it's much better for us to have a, have a more broadly distributed system. We got an email from Linda in Myrtle Beach. Uh, Dear Doc and Andrew, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. She's in trouble. My husband says my passwords for all my accounts are the same, and they're all too easy to guess. Oh, that's not that. That's there's much more uh, worse kinds of trouble, aren't there? Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I'm relieved to hear that's her trouble. That's, okay. Yeah, there could be there could be a lot of more big trouble, bigger trouble than that. Yeah. <laughs> now, if I change them to all different passwords, I'll never remember them, and I'll never get into my accounts. Help! Is there a way to create different passwords for each of my accounts that I can remember? Thanks for a great show, Linda in Myrtle Beach. Well, Linda, uh, I'll tell you this: um, this is a common problem. This is a common problem because people because you 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 want to make a long password. So hackers can't guess it. And you want to make it complicated with symbols and capitals and lowercase. 
so they so even make it harder to guess than that. And then you want a different password for every account. Well, that is very complicated unless you have a method. And I'm going to give a method here, Linda, that's going to make it very easy for you to make a long password. So what you start out with is a phrase that you can remember, any phrase. And the phrase itself is going to become the, 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 the basis of the password. So let's just pick a phrase. Stratford University is great. Okay, I like that phrase. Now, I, I want you to know I don't use this for my passwords. But uh, So you use Stratford University is great. The first thing you do to that phrase is take out all of the spaces. So you just have a string of number, a string of letters. Stratford University is great. Then what you do, you capitalize the second word in the phrase. In this case, I would capitalize you, Stratford University. The third thing you do is you change all the A's to an ampersand. So it would be Stratford, S-T-R, ampersand T, F-O-R-D. And great would be G-R-E, ampersand T. And by the, the way, you know, we're not all English majors, Doc, so an ampersand okay. is also known as the at symbol. The at symbol, yeah. It's the at symbol like in, uh, like uh, for email. Correct. That one. It's the email symbol, the at symbol. Yes. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> it's the A with the little circle around it. Yes. Uh, then the, the next thing you do, whenever there's an S, you change it to a dollar sign. So Stratford would then be dollar sign, S-T-R, ampersand, F-O-R-D. And so... And in this case, we've got an, a dollar sign in Stratford, a dollar sign in university, and, uh, and a dollar sign for is. Stratford University is great. Now, that gives us our baseline password. Now, here's how you get a password now that's different for every, every account. So let's say you want to use the password for Gmail. You append three letters to that. So for Gmail, you append GMA or whatever you could remember. So you just have that baseline password, which is based on the passphrase, Stratford University is great, and just put GMA. And that's your Gmail password. And let's say for Facebook password, you put down that phrase with all those changes, and at the end, you just put FAC. And so you have three letters that relate to the account you're doing. So now you've got a long password that's really easy to remember and type because it's you know, it's just one passphrase with substitutions. And then every one of your sub-accounts, you just append three letters. That way, you've got a complicated password. All your passwords are different, and it's very hard to guess. So I hope that gets you out of trouble, Linda. Now, Doc, what is, what is the problem with using a password manager? Why don't, why don't we like to do that? Well, I mean, it's uh, – well, you have to – first of all, with a password manager, you have to remember a password – and there, there are a lot of people that just don't like password managers because it's, uh, you know, I mean, you've got your passwords stored someplace else. And, um, you know, so I, I have not really used password so, managers. So are they vulnerable se. in the sense that if you hack the password to get into the password manager, now you have all the other ones at your disposal? Yeah, the, you have all the other ones there if your yeah. password manager is hacked. Right. Uh, and then you still have to remember the, the password to your password manager. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. So, and so and, and then you want to have a complex password for your password manager. So you're still going to have a passphrase. So if you've got this simple three letter, uh, three letter um, ending of the, of the basic passphrase, 
you, you just don't need it. Yeah. And, and, uh, and this, this has really worked quite well. And, uh, and you, you just don't tell people what your passphrase is. Never. And it could be anything, you know, like, you know, my cat is gray. I mean, it's, it's whatever, it's whatever you can remember. Right. But, but, but don't use Stratford University is great. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes, and next we get to know the 24-year-old American who has become a leading pioneer in the development of artificial intelligence. Profiles in IT coming up on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to talk about Alexander Wang... That's Alexander D.R. There's no D.E.R. Wang. He's an AI, a pioneer, best known as co-founder and CEO of Scale AI. Alexander Wang was born in 1997 as Los Alamos, New Mexico. His, both of his parents are physicists with doctorates. They're working at the, uh, at the research lab at Los Alamos on our uh, nuclear bomb program. Uh, and so he was a techie in a techie environment there at Los Alamos. Uh, he began playing the violin at nine years old, but uh, he also liked to do a lot of stuff in addition to violin. His other interests included writing, hiking, programming, and he read philosophy books, a lot of philosophy books. Now, he taught himself how to code uh, just with the help of the Internet, self-taught. And then he started going to coding competitions he went to the USA Computing Olympiad, and uh, such. He, he and he and he and he was he was a finalist in these things at the national level. He he did extremely well in these coding competitions. In 2014, he graduated from Los Alamos High School, but because of the expertise that he got during the coding competitions, uh, a lot of the tech companies wanted him because they they would they would see the winners of these 
or the finalists in these coding competitions. So he actually went to tech companies in Silicon Valley straight out of high school. Now, uh, another guy, with, another success story, by the way, where college is just not important. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That That is exactly right. He, he knew what he wanted to do and he just started doing it. And he was able to do it. He was good at it. So that's, that's it. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Now, now he got he started working at a startup called Adapar as a software engineer. Now, he was responsible for building and maintaining financial models and creating features for the app. Uh, now, a year later, he was hired by another startup, Quora, and within about six months, he became tech lead of the infrastructure team. Now, the and he was in charge of all the speed projects. Now, these are projects that were high priority that had to be done yesterday. So he ran all the speed projects and speed initiatives at Quora because he was, he could write fast and he was a good manager. Now, in 2016, he interned at Hudson River Valley Trading, where he developed uh, trading algorithms. Now, now Hudson River Valley Trading, that's actually in New York. So he left Silicon Valley, check, check out this uh, finance company in New York. But what he began to notice, there was a common theme going on in all the tech field, was that machine learning was beginning to be taking over the world. They call it, you know, AI. It's another word for it now, but but they're, they're doing machine learning using artificial neural networks. So he decided to enroll in a machine learning program at MIT. So he enrolled in the um, in a uh, in an undergraduate program there at MIT. But he basically just he, he was taking graduate classes in machine learning. You know, he majored in computer science, and he just started taking all the courses he liked for about a year. He took courses there. Uh, now, he saw, and there was a lot of excitement there at MIT about the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning and the feeling that this could somehow change the world. But, it, but at this moment, it wasn't making a huge impact yet. There was just a lot of hype. So the idea for his company came to Wang while he was at MIT. Now, and this is, this is what started it. He was convinced that one of his roommates was stealing food from the refrigerator. So he decided to set up a camera to catch the culprit in the act. And then he ran into a roadblock. The video camera mostly just left the massive amounts of video footage, but no answer. He realized, and this is when he realized, that any complex AI application had to be smart enough to label Im imagery and notify him when the food was actually taken. So he, all he had was just a bunch of video footage, but it wasn't usable data. That was the big insight. And he started looking at all of his friends who were working on AI, AI projects at MIT. They, they, they would work on the project, define the project, and then they would get to the data stage. And it was a huge roadblock because it was hard to curate the data. It was hard to uh, it was hard to actually uh, annotate the data so that it would be useful to an AI algorithm. And that was a roadblock. He began to realize that the big bottleneck for all AI was actually 
getting, adding intelligence to data and making it useful. And there were no standardized tools or infrastructure to solve the problem. Now, you had big companies like Google uh, that were doing AI, but they had huge teams to curate their data. You know, you had Amazon, they had huge teams. But, but if you'd want to be in an AI startup, you don't have a huge team to curate this data. So that, that would be a huge problem. Now, he believed that you could do incredible things with the AI if you could, but you can't treat data as an afterthought. I mean, his view is, you know, data is actually doing the coding, actually, because you're learning from the data. So the coding is done by the data, really. And if you've got bad data, he says, you know, it's classic case, garbage in, garbage out. So he looks as data as the new code. Data builds the program. Data tells the program what to do. So it's all about the data. So with this insight, he said, well, I'm just going to go out. Maybe I can, maybe I can, maybe I can get a job, get an internship. So he interviewed for internships. He got a lot of offers. Uh, you know, he, he was, you know, he thought he would intern over the summer. He just finished his first year at school there at MIT. So he got a lot of offers, but he kept thinking about this data dilemma with AI. So he decided to quit school and start an AI company that would address this problem. Now, his parents weren't very happy with this decision, by the way, because his parents felt that, you know, their son... I mean, they're both PhDs. They wanted their son to get a PhD so they could put the diploma on the wall. Uh, on the and other hand, at, at, a time, one, you one know, at a time when most kids are thinking about which internship should I take, this kid is thinking, which company can I found? That's right. <laughs> so. so he so he, he he got picked up by Y Combinator, which is a which is a a, a, um, a, a, a nurture startups out there in in California, and he named his company Scale AI because he was gonna help companies scale their AI. And everybody made fun of him because his company was scale AI and he had three employees. <laughs> well, they were ready to scale, that's all I can say. That's right. So he decided that scale AI would build the data foundation for AI. It would create an infrastructure that other organizations could build on top of to support their AI efforts. So, uh, you know, his initial thing was, if you want to curate the data, it takes thousands of people to curate a lot of data. So he created an interface where they could hire contract employees to log in and they could, uh, and they could tag or they could annotate data through this interface to curate it. And so he set up an infrastructure that allowed massive amounts of data to be curated and tagged using a cadre of thousands of uh, of contract employees that was his that was his first you know first level effort here at scale ai now they started uh, actually then once he started actually developing that they, they they got their first seed money while he was still at y combinator in august of 2016 they got seed funding round of $120,000 from y combinator that's when he went there with his three folks. He got $120 in seed funding. And their first uh, client was actually an autonomous, were autonomous vehicle companies that, that, that needed to label data to train learning, uh, machine learning models to you know, develop robo-taxis and self-driving trucks and automated bots and warehouses and on-demand delivery. Uh, 
And there were a lot of people that wanted to get into these fields, but they, they really had no experience with all this AI data manipulation. So he had, uh, in addition to, to autonomous vehicle startups, he also had contracts with General Motors, Toyota, even NVIDIA gave him a contract, a chip maker. He had a couple of AV autonomous vehicle startups called Neuro and Zooks. Uh, and they all they all use the, their platform for curating the data, uh, and he started growing. Now, Scales Scales customers now include government, e-commerce, enterprise automation, automatics, Airbnb, OpenAI, DoorDash, and Pinterest. So now he's got a lot of things. So he hit the market at exactly the right time. You see, I mean, artificial neural networks have been around since the late '80s. Before that, we had role-based artificial intelligence using programming language called Lisp. And then it wasn't until recently when we had all of the cloud computing when you could really scale up these artificial neural net networks that we had a huge breakthrough in machine learning. And that has always been done by these huge companies like Google and, and, uh, and Amazon. But, but it was hard for startups to really get in the business because of the data, the data problem. But the research now has has now been done to, to to show how to use machine learning algorithms based on artificial neural networks with curated data to solve to solve really complicated problems. But we have to find a way to get that get that knowledge out of the research lab and into the in production everywhere. So he's providing the tools to basically put. AI machine learning in production. And that's why he's got so many companies coming after him. He, he was there at the right place at the right time. Now on, on May 23rd of 2017, they got uh, Series A funding, $4.5 million. And that was led by a Cell and Y Combinator. Wang was the youngest entrepreneur to be funded by a Cell. He started, by the way, this company was only 19 years old. In 2019, Scale AI announced that it had secured Series C funding of a million dollars. Now, after the funding of Series C, the company was valued at $1 billion. And at that 20, point, it became a unicorn company, by the way. So unicorn company, there's a definition for it, a privately held company that is valued at $1 billion or more. Yeah, so... In only three years, he became a unicorn. Yeah. Now, in 2020, uh, they developed, uh, they went beyond this data curation interface with thousands of contract employees, and they developed Nucleus, an AI development platform. This is sort of like Google Photos for machine learning data sets. Nucleus provides customers a way to organize, curate, manage massive data sets, giving companies a means to test their models and measure performance, among other tasks. In total... To date, Scale has raised $620 million, and in 2021, their valuation is now $7.3 billion. Now, aren't they profitable? Or they, You would think they'd soon be profitable on their own, too. I mean, it's not just about the money that they get, but uh, they must be making pretty good money with the service that they provide. They are profitable now. Yeah, uh, this the, in, in the last quarter, they've... they've Flip the chart, and now they're profitable. Oh, that's wonderful! Yeah, and they're and they're going to be able now to grow organically just on their profits. Good. But they had they they needed that funding to to scale up and to get the customer base. Now, 
Alexander, I mean, his ultimate goal is for scale AI to be the machine learning what Amazon Web Services is to cloud computing. And by the way, AWS is everywhere. People don't realize it, but um, they are really, really um, underlying so much of everything that you do now uh, that relates to the cloud. And, th and so many things, like even your photos on, 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 uh, on say, on, on your iPhone, they're not actually in your iPhone. They're actually in the cloud, and you're accessing them every time you look at them. Uh, so, so many things are not stored on the devices that you hold in your hand anymore, but you're actually accessing the cloud, and Amazon Web Services has a lot to do with that. That's right. So there you go. Everything you needed to know about Alexander Wang and the company that he started, Scale AI. Well, of course, there's more to be said about Alexander Wang. So uh, pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair. Observations from the Faculty Lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now the impact of AI on our lives is gonna be transformational. Progress is accelerating exponentially, and we'd be better be ready for the ride. You see, it's been in the research labs for 30 years. I was doing artificial neural networks in the last 80s, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the late 80s, and it took this long for it to get ready and be launched. And we're going to see a lot of applications of AI using tools such as uh, Alexander Wang is developing at Scale AI. Alexander Wang believes that AI will change our daily lives as much as the internet changed it. Now, number one, it's going to affect healthcare dramatically. Worldwide, we've got a shortage of doctors. And yet, if you put in the data, if you've got symptoms and you put that data into an AI network, a machine learning network, it can probably make a pretty good prediction as to what's wrong with you. And we're going to get safer and more accurate and lower cost healthcare delivered globally. Uh, AI is going to be used for drug design. I mean, it's going to be, you know, look at uh, 
they, they'll be able to put all of this data in and they'll be able to actually develop drugs faster and an accelerated rate. Agriculture is gonna change. Right now, we could use artificial intelligence, uh, looking at satellite data to increase crop yields, decrease the amount of waste in the overall food and agricultural system. Uh, we basically have an, uh, have an antiquated uh, agricultural supply chain, and using AI, we can dramatically improve this. And, and this will particularly impact other countries, developing countries. Transportation is going to be revolutionized with self-driving cars and truck delivery robots. It will affect retail. It'll change the way we buy things. I mean, stores may know what we are going to buy before we know what we want. <laughs> yes, it'll just pop up in your uh, shopping list. <laughs> it'll it'll just pop up in the shopping list. It will uh, now. Uh, now, Alexander, he doesn't believe like uh, Elon Musk that AI and computers are going to replace humans. He thinks we're going to augment humans. They're going to allow us to perform higher value tasks. And I mean, the analogy he likes to give, when, when automated tellers came out, autom automated teller machines, ATM, people said, the bank teller job is going to just go away. But when ATMs were launched, the banks actually hired more bank tellers who were performing higher level functions. And because they're performing higher level functions, they could pay them more and they provide better service to the clients. And then just the routine thing of, of passing out cash was, was done with the, by the ATMs. Yeah, I think, too, you know, as he looks at this thing, he talks about the technology of it, but he's also very much concerned with the impact on humans and, in other words, the ethical implications of artificial intelligence. And he talked about this in an interview, an online interview with Index Ventures last year. At scale, I think we're really focused on, I think, I think most of the world is really um, honing in on, is how do we take the current deep learning technology and deploy it very broadly throughout the world? And one of the big bottlenecks is data that we're really focused on that we care a lot about, obviously. But but there's a lot more of these these challenges in the actual deployment of the, that technology um, broadly within the world. There's ethical questions around what does it really mean if these systems control so much of our lives um, that we need to work through. There's uh, like actual operational problems, which is like how do you have these deep learning systems? Like what oversight do you have on them? How do you deal with bias, et cetera? So there's a lot of these questions, but ultimately, as a technologist, I think of those as implementation details versus um, the fact that they, it work, the technology works. Like you can recognize whatever you want in an image almost, and, and that'll work. I like how he says, you know, it's a, it, from a technological point of view, it's actually implementation details because there too, it's going to depend on what kind of input you put into the data set that the artificial intelligence works with to make uh, ethical decisions. Yeah, and, and the problem is we don't know how these, uh, since the data programs the computer and the biases are built into the data, it's, it's very hard to detect that bias because it's sort of just built into the... Uh, to the, to, to the data sets. I mean, one example of that is when Google, they said, well, let's use AI to, in our hiring. So they went through and they, they looked at uh, characteristics of applicants, and then they compared it to who was successful on the job. And so they said, okay, well, these characteristics make successful people on the job. So they used that AI algorithms to start hiring people at Google 
And it turned out that the algorithm simply implemented the biases that, 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 that they had been exercising over the past decade. Right. So it's still garbage in, garbage out. So we will have to be very mindful of how we program these things. But the, the fact that people are thinking about the ethical implications is also a good sign. That's right. Now, now he thinks the way innovation happens. He says you you can do, he says you re really can never predict the future. He says we know that AI is going to impact dramatically. We just don't know how. So he wrote a great article about uh, betting on the unknown unknowns. He says so you got this they're always some if you've got a team of smart people working on a project, they're going to they're going to be a couple of developments that they create that you could never predict it. And he says when he's looked back on it, there have always been a couple of unknown unknowns, and those have uh, ha have allowed the company to to expand dramatically. And he gave examples with Amazon. So he's betting that scale is going to have a huge growth because he's going to bet on the unknown unknowns. And I've got a link to that article. It's really very insightful. You know what's funny, so, too, though? He talked about timelines, like people predicting uh, when the vaccine would be developed for COVID, and it got developed much faster than vaccines ever have been developed in the past. And and even when Dr. Fauci said uh, he thought it would be ready by uh, you know August 2021, it was actually ready a few months before then. So he says once you get into that betting on unknowns, things actually go faster than you ever imagined. And, and it, what's funny is that all the list of things you just said, all the ways that he talked about um, to AI influencing and changing our lives, he, he had a timeline on it too, by 2030s, like thinking by the end of the decade. And won't it be interesting to see in seven or eight years if he was anywhere close to, or was it a lot faster than even he imagined it? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's interesting to watch this, but I think just get ready for a, fast accelerated rate on the implication of AI. When this stuff goes into production, you're not going to believe how impactful it is. And I wanted to add one more thing. I wanted to read something very quickly to you because he, I, this was uh, from a print uh, in interview he gave. Because we often talk about these successful people and how they surround themselves with other people. Like what are their criteria when they're trying to build a team? And this is what Alexander Wang said. This is last year. Always surround yourself with the best people you know. I think this is super, super simple. And we've all heard it a thousand times, but it's so true, like 400 people, not only people who are smart, who are ambitious, but also those who reinforce your best qualities and call you out on your worst. So these bosses, they want, this is not me quoting him anymore, these bosses, they want people who will tell them the truth, even if they say, boss, you're just wrong on this. Yeah, that 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 sounds uh, that sounds like a lot like Claude Shannon, yeah, who we talked and, about last week. Right. And any number of other people we've profiled, the, the most successful people want their juniors to tell them when they're wrong. Yeah, that's exactly true. That's exactly true. Well, Doc, we could take a little break here and then go uh, uh, with a couple more good things we have to say, uh, including about how you see colors. <laughs> okay, so yes. we'll talk about that next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now let's talk about the trivia of the week, Munker's Illusion. Never heard of it. <laughs> I hadn't heard of it either until just recently. Oranges are sold in bright red mesh bags because the contrast of the red netting against the orange color makes the oranges appear brighter orange. See, you knew it's there was a good marketing thing behind it, right? There's always some marketing yeah. trick there. It's an optical illusion known as Munker's illusion. And we see the oranges as being more vivid. Now, the Munker's illusion is one of those things that works. Even It works. You can see it even when you know it's a trick. I, I've got a link to a, uh, to a video sequence that shows two dots that are both green, and you put uh, lines in front of it of different colors, and the green dots appear to change color even though they don't. It's... it's you, you're, you're, your, your mind, what you see is a combination of what your eye perceives and what your brain processes. And the brain is processing this in a way that makes the color change. And that's the Munker's illusion. Now, it's a chromatic illusion, which means it relies on your brain's way of seeing color. Now, there are three elements in this illusion. You've got the background color. You've got a colored shape, which is sitting on the background, and then you've got bars that go over it, or a mesh, uh, that go over the entire third color. Now, the, generally, the bars in the background will be at opposite ends of the spectrum, either very light or very dark. Like, red looks orange in one case, and then purple in another, And in this, in this video. Now, the same trick works with green, uh, in, in some versions, the green looks fluorescent yellow, and in another one, it looks like a somber green. Just layering colors in the right way tricks the eyes into not recognizing identical objects, even when both objects are in plain view. Now, this, this illusion is what gets at, some people say, is the dress 
purple or is it red? You've seen these big controversies on the web on what color a dress is. Yeah. And it's all it's all some variation of Munker's illusion. Now, Doc, I got almost a headache from trying to stare at those colors because it kind of freaked me out how the two identical sort of green circles turn into other colors when they're super, you know, something else is superimposed on them. Uh, let's remind people how they can actually find this link because you actually post the show description and include the links. And what's the uh, website they should go to to see that? So you can go to, to uh, techtalk.stratford.edu. And uh, and then we'll we'll post the the show outlined there, and you can also you, you'll get the show MP3, so you can uh, you, you get everything there. TechTalk.Stratford.edu, and we'll we'll have all that posting up by uh, by Monday, I'm sure. Good. What else so we got? It's, uh, or you can you can look at Munker's Illusion and search for a YouTube video, and you you may be able I to can find do that. It without, but we want them to go to the Stratford site, link. Doc. <laughs> we want them to come to your site and have a look at it, don't we? Exactly. It would be much better <laughs> if you come to the Stratford Absolutely. site. And while you're there, you could check out uh, all the uh, all the Stratford programs. Now let's let's talk about this Bitcoin trial. Um, yes, they know, finally reached a verdict. Uh, but only on one count. All the other counts were way too complicated, and they made no decision at all on them. Go ahead, Doc. No, they, they did. This was, uh, it turns out that uh, uh, David Kleiman and uh, Craig Wright had been business partners working on various technology projects. Uh, now, Craig Wright claims that he had uh, invented Bitcoin. He claims that he's uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. But uh, nobody in the crypt cryptocurrency community believes that's true. But he's been making that claim. Now, Craig Wright is, a, um, is an Australian. And he and uh, David Kleiman, they were trying to uh, avoid uh, the high Australian taxes. And they created all these shell companies. They were moving stuff over to the Grand Caymans. So they had uh, another company where they were just shifting assets all over the place. And... So uh, David Kleiman died uh, in, in 2016. Actually, he died in 2013 at age 46. And his brother, Ira Kleiman, said, wait a minute here. My brother, David, was co-inventor of Bitcoin with Craig Wright. And Craig Wright, if he was Satoshi Nakamoto, has 1.1 million Bitcoins that are worth about $50 billion dollars. We believe that half of those Bitcoins should belong to the Kleiman family. That was the, the crux of the lawsuit. So they went in there trying to, uh, to prove that. And uh, this thing went on. Everybody's kind of interested because they thought, well, maybe finally Craig Wright's going to have to prove that he is Satoshi Nakamoto. And you, the only way to do that is to transfer some of the Bitcoins in Satoshi's wallet because the wallet address is public. So if he transfers anything out of the wallet, everybody's going to know it. And so uh, and so the jury listened to everything. And in the end, they concluded that uh, that David Kleiman did not co-invent Bitcoin and that Wright could keep all of the $1.1 million Bitcoins, Craig Wright, uh, if in fact he's Satoshi Nakamoto. On the other hand, they looked at all of these uh, transfers of money to shell accounts all over the world, like to the Grand Caymans, and, 
And they said, actually, there was some intellectual property associated with the technology of all of that that the Kleiman family does have the right to. So they did award uh, Ira Kleiman $100 million for intellectual property rights for all the other stuff that they were working on. And, uh, and Craig Wright is, you know, is quite happy with that result because he can, he can keep his $50 billion and only, and only $100 million uh, was lost. Now, he thinks, now, though, that the trial is you know, evidence that, he, that this is, he is Satoshi Nakamoto, but he, no one is still going to believe that until he actually at least moves some of that blockchain. If, even if he, for example, he could pay the $100 million judgment out of that chain and then we would know that that was that was him and um, that that would prove it yeah that's we'll what see what happens because i have a feeling he i you know people are thinking well he's got this 50 million but billion dollars but he actually i'm not convinced he has any of it really or very i'm little not bit. convinced he's he's yeah. like a, a promoter right so we'll see <laughs> so how he pays for his judgment himself on and on and on and on for for the longest time and i'm just i'm just not convinced that he's satoshi nakamoto but he's a very colorful guy, and in fact, he did mine a lot of Bitcoin, and so he has other Bitcoin wallets. He's done a lot of Bitcoin mining. Now, the, the other thing is with this uh, David Kleiman, he had 14 hard drives, and his brother Ira was so inept that they basically wiped 11 of the 14 hard drives. And I, I'm, I'm thinking there could have been uh, Bitcoins on those hard drives that he just trashed without even knowing what he was doing because i do think that uh that i that uh david Kleiman was probably mining bitcoin back in the beginning too and i suspect that uh, that craig wright showed him how to do it because they were friends so he probably was mining his own bitcoin he probably had bitcoin in those hard drives and his brother was so technically incompetent he he didn't know what he was looking at so uh, i think there's still more to be discovered in this whole in this whole trial. Well, I think we got time for one more short discussion. Yes, we do. Uh, the U.S. is blacklisting the Israeli hacking tool vendor, the NSO Group. Now, the U.S. Department of Commerce uh, added Israel's NSO Group and Shandira to its trade back blacklist. Both Israeli companies offer hacking tools to government and security agencies. Now, the companies are accused of engaging in activities contrary to the U.S. national security or foreign policy interests. Now, the ban means that exports to them from U.S. counterparts are restricted. For instance, it's far harder for U.S. researchers to sell them information about computer vulnerabilities. Suppliers need a license to sell before they can get it. And what really teed off this country, country is that there were many phones in this country that had been hacked using their tools. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Then we'd like you to also go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs in nursing, healthcare, cybersecurity, computer networking, uh, accounting, business, uh, culinary arts, hospitality, and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. 
Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.